Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. And curiously so, we could call him in the context of the story today, the IMAX man. He was a man who lived in a place and suddenly he was put on the cosmic screen of a cosmic controversy as the IMAX man for the entire universe to observe how he behaved and the outcome as he struggled with the very questions we were talking about. Job 1 verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call at any time, 24-7-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is standing by right now to take your phone call. Today's Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Michael Oxentenko is the first portion of a message entitled The IMAX Man. That's The IMAX Man, and you can find it along with the rest of the Cosmic Controversy series online at reachingyourheart.com. The IMAX Man is number eight in the series, and we'll begin that broadcast here today, but due to our time constraints, we are not able to finish it. But you can listen to it again online. It's available in its entirety without interruption, and we'll finish this broadcast the next time we're together. Let's get underway now. Here is Pastor Michael Oxentenko with the first portion of the IMAX Man. Today's Reaching Your Heart. A number of years ago, ABC aired a special docudrama reenacting the sinking of the Titanic. The morning after the disaster, a woman was pictured standing aboard the Caparthia, gazing into the confusing waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. As each wave lapped against the boat, she looked over the side with lonely longing as the deceptive swells of a sorrowful sea sank like knives into her broken heart. Her family was lost at sea. Her husband and son were buried beneath the cold waters, numb with pain, numb with a cold kind of pain. She stared into the icy depths, seeking answers to questions deep within. Suddenly, the camera shifted to a waitress serving sandwiches and coffee, making her clumsy way along the Caparthia's splintered deck. Trying to ease the tension and soothe the hearts of the mourners, she offered unwelcome words of sympathy to the woman she was trying to help. She said, You must not lose faith in the Almighty. It was God's will and His infinite love and mercy that the ship go down. Still gazing over the deck, the woman replied at the end of a shredding silence, No coffee, no tea, no God either. He went down with the Titanic. Now what happens to the hurting heart when confronted with unexplainable tragedy and pain? What happens when you stare into the face of fear and it robs you of faith and feeling you don't feel God is close? What happens when death is the dose of life dealt you and loneliness is the lethal legacy of a life that has gone down with the ship? What happens when you're standing on the edge and you're looking down and you're praying for God's answers and you don't feel God there? A few years ago, Time Magazine featured a somber cover surrounded by a solid halftone black border. Bold letters in black spelled the word evil followed by the question, does it exist or do bad things just happen? 
A series of questions were highlighted and bold throughout the feature article. For instance, is AIDS evil? Is Saddam evil? Is nature evil? And then the question, maybe God is in exile. It was a question. As the article continued to give a survey of theological reflections on the nature of evil, it finally settled into one line of thought. Theologians have long struggled with the dilemma of God's will and infinite power in the context of suffering. And Frederick Buchner, the theologian who has put forth three problematic propositions, has really captured the problem in these three propositions. Proposition number one, God is all-powerful. Proposition number two, God is all-good. Proposition number three, terrible things happen. Now supposedly, only two of the three propositions can be true at the same time. So you've got to give up something to make it really make sense in the world in which we live. So how can you reconcile the fact of a painful and tragic world with a good and all-powerful God? I mean, this is the question that's not just the question that theologians ask. It's the questions that really occupy the attention of Christians, too. I say Christians, too, because a lot of theologians aren't Christians these days. They're philosophers who masquerade as such. So simply stated, why do bad things happen to good people when God can fix it? When he, when he has all the power to simply step in and prevent harm from coming your way, why do you have to experience evil? God has the power, doesn't he? God has the power. Why doesn't he break in and stop the stuff? Now, when I was only three, my dad left home. I can go back in my own experience. I can relate to this question personally. I, I grew up never knowing my real father. When I was 16, I enrolled in a boarding school looking for something. I was looking for God's leading my life. When I arrived at the school, I carried the bare essentials of life with me. I had a few clothes, a fishing rod. I brought my dog, Fang. Fang was his name. I wasn't going to go to school without my dog. I mean, don't they have rooms for students at schools? Well, my dog would sleep at my bed. That's how I figured. So I brought him. They let the dog stay. The first day on campus, I discovered my shock and amazement that my father, my biological father, was in a hospital adjacent to the school. I will never forget the ambivalence I experienced as I walked into his room. I mean, something was directing my life course, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I didn't know whether I should walk in in disgust for the years of neglect or somehow let forgiveness take over and embrace him as my father. I was in a mix of struggle at that moment. I did the latter. I forgave him, and I chose to love him and take what I could take into the future. And I've never regretted this to this day. The next two months were magic in the making, my dad and me, forever together it seemed. The stuff that storybooks are made of, it seemed there would be no end to the joy we had together. One night I was awakened by the sound of a fierce knocking at the door of our house. I staggered to the door, and I opened it just shortly after I'd met my father. A hospital administrator stood sternly still as the unwelcome ambassador of death to my dreams. He simply said, Mike, your dad is dead. And with the slash of those words, the closing curtain of my father's life closed in on me that night. And faith was faltering. There was a feeling inside that God was gone. And I felt like the woman on the deck of the Carpathia. Where is God when he could have fixed this thing? And with the slash of those words, I crowd out in pain in the black night of my adolescent anger. You see, we have all been Job, have we not, at some point of our life. The story of Job is an altogether ordinary story. Where are you, Dad? Come back, Dad. Don't leave me alone to figure out the answers on my own. In time, I leveled my fist at the sky, lost in the greater question, where are you, God? And why did you let my father die? Because you have all the power 
to save lives. I discovered that I was not alone in my anger and my questions. As I read the Bible, as I was drawn into the Word of God, I discovered that there was an ancient sufferer who lived in the land of Uz who asked the same questions, who went through this experience at a more horrific level than I had, who was more profoundly keen in his intellect to analyze it, to strike poetry, to create the record of his life. And curiously so, we could call him in the context of the story today the IMAX man. He was a man who lived in a place, and suddenly he was put on the cosmic screen of a cosmic controversy as the IMAX man for the entire universe to observe how he behaved and the outcome as he struggled with the very questions we were talking about. Job 1 verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. I mean, it starts out right. It starts with a man who knows God, who loves God, who follows God, who in his own context has got it right. Job's name in Hebrew means the oppressed of God. Paradoxically, his name doesn't make sense with his life experience. In other words, here here was a man who was basically good and didn't deserve a raw rap in life at all. Here was a man who had every right to a full pension and a social security check. Here was a man who was virtuous. His middle name was virtue. And faith and devotion was his spiritual and social contribution. There was nothing wrong with him. The book of Job begins with an evil, subtle claim from Satan that he, the adversary, controls the whole earth and God does not have control of planet earth. Job 1 verse 6, Now there was a day. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence have you come? Satan answered the Lord, I have come from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Now when God gave Abraham the land of Canaan, he told him to do exactly the same thing, to walk the height and breadth of the land and to walk it, and whatever he walked on it would be his. So Satan knows what this means. He's telling God that I own planet earth, that I have planet earth. You may have given Abraham or or someone like this the promised land. You may be planning to do this in the future, but it doesn't matter. I own planet earth. It's mine. And we know in Luke 4, 6, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that Satan openly claimed that all the kingdoms of the earth and their dominion had been given to him. And Christ did not oppose him in that claim. Christ didn't challenge him at all. In fact, in John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, Jesus clearly declares that Satan is, in fact, the ruler of this world. So in the presence of Satan, God was the one who introduced Job's name into the mix. It's as if God was saying, you may control the world, but you don't control everyone in the world. There is a man, there is a man in the world who follows me. There's a man who cares about me. There is a man who's got it right, who values my law. There is a man, no matter what you do to him, he will not betray me. And I'm going to take that man and I'm going to place him on the IMAX screen of the universe. You do what you want to to him short of taking his life, but I will show you that you do not have dominion of the earth. Job 1 verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God is saying, Satan, you may control the world, but you don't control my servant Job. Verse 9, and Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for naught? Satan claims that Job's theology is prosperity theology. Now, what's prosperity theology? It's pretty simple. You follow God and God blesses you. Have you ever thought that? You know, you do all the right things and God's going to bless you and that's kind of how it works. You ever thought that? Yes or no? So why not follow God? Wouldn't that be kind of easy? 
you follow God and you have a great time and you get blessed. It pays to follow God with that pray-pay theology. Pray and pay is how it works. It's called prosperity theology. It happens to be a false theology that is not true because the Bible says everyone who follows Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. How does it fit into this prosperity theology? Now, it's true we will receive more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. But it's also true that you cannot plan a course of life with Christ that does not have a cross to carry and a difficult path and journey for you. It's just part of the program. So prosperity theology is incorrect theology. Look at verse 10. Satan says, Hast thou not put a hedge about him in his house, and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only upon himself. Do not put forth your hands. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Almost sounds like Cain, who left the presence of the Lord to go east of Eden. The book of Job begins with a man who is not under the control of Satan at all. It starts with a wind that takes away his family, that dashes his hopes to the ground. And the book ends with a whirlwind that brings God to Job. It's a book of paradox. The land of Oz is not like Kansas and the land of Oz where everything turns out okay for Dorothy. The book begins with a storm and it ends with a storm. And God is in the storm. In verse 13, the Bible says... There came a day when Job's children were all together at a feast and suddenly a series of messengers arrived and Job's way of life comes to an awful end. Divine intervention brings his prosperity to an end. Because he is faithful, he loses what he has. Because he follows God, he is not blessed. That's what's actually happening here because Job is the IMAX man. The universe is watching to see what he will do. In the story, Job becomes an old man early. Four servants carry four messages that systematically dash his dreams to death. The four winds of strife blow hard on Job, and his life descends into unexplainable grief. The first messenger said, The Sabaeans have killed your servants. The second messenger reported, The fire of God has burned up all your sheep. The third told him, The Chaldeans have stolen your camels. And last of all, the fourth, the fourth messenger, like the fourth wind of strife, The fourth messenger finished him off with a blow to his heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will continue in just a moment. Stay tuned. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-supported program. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. Call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Or you can stop by our website, reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Let's get back to the broadcast now. Here is Pastor Michael Oxentenka with more of today's Reaching Your Heart. The fourth messenger, like the fourth wind of strife, the fourth messenger finished him off with a blow to his heart that had reached deep within his legacy, within his life, that laid him low, Job 1.18. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters are eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. 
And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then the Bible says Job tore his clothes, and he worshiped God in the midst of his suffering, praying, naked came I into the world, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, I don't know how he pulled that off. What about you? Can you imagine praying a prayer like that after something like that happened to you? I mean, it's unbelievable. There he is, worshiping in the midst of the, of the loss of everything he has. No fists at God, trying to come to grips with it. So after the passing of time in chapter 2, there's another council in the heavenly universe, and the devil doesn't look so good. Suddenly, he doesn't look good at all. And Satan comes eating his words while all the more determined to strike out at God through Job. So he figures, you know, there's one thing left in Job's life you can take from him. And when you take that, then he'll do what I say. He'll curse you. Job 2.4, Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. The chronicle of pain that follows is familiar to us all. Covered from head to foot with sores, Job finally breaks down and cries out. He sits down in a dung heap and cries like a baby trying to crawl and claw a way back to his mother's womb. Job 3.20, why is light given to him that is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death but it comes not and dig for it more than for hid treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes as my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. You know, I read this story, I was first moved. The second time, I was perplexed. The third time, I was frustrated. In fact, it moved to anger. Not at Satan, but at God. You see, I discovered as I read the story that God's the one that drags Job into this problem. Satan doesn't bring Job's name up at all. God does it. God's the one who makes Job the IMAX man parading his problems and showcasing his sorrows. And so the book starts out with a problem. God uses his power to drag Job into the arena. Job 1 verse 8. God's the one who says, Have you considered my servant Job? In other words, you've been ignoring him all his life. Now focus on him. It's God that does this. And this morning, I'd like you to do what God asked Satan to do and consider this lonely sufferer in the land of us as an authentic answer to deep questions. And more than this, to look at his life without trying to contrive answers. I believe his faith struggle provides four key lessons learned that can help you overcome when the storm blows against you and your house in uncertain times that are coming. In other words, we can look at Job's life and we can, go, we can gain lessons for our life. Faith lesson number one. In the context of suffering, people need people, not answers. I'll say that again. In the context of suffering, people need people, not answers. Job six fourteen and 15. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Look at verse 15. My brethren are treacherous as a torrent bed, as freshets that pass away. You know, when someone is hurting, the worst thing you can do is to give them a speech on correct theology. When Job was down on his back, his 
three best friends show up, not to comfort him, but to give him a lecture on ethics and philosophy. They're all three loaded with time-tested, pat answers that don't work when you're hurting. And that's what they give. Friend number one, so, so far. He claims it's Job's sins that have brought all this misfortune on him. So repent up and get better. Friend number two, Bildad, claims that it's the secret working of God for good in Job's life. That's kind of like the providential argument of the Calvinists. The sovereignty of God is at work here. Friend number three, Eliphaz, has the gall to tell Job he should be happy and just forget about his problems. That's the positive thinking philosophy of the present day. None of that works when you're hurting. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her book, Death and Dying, tells of a 28-year-old mother who was dying from advanced liver disease. Her husband was stressed out with the bills and the added pressure of raising the kids. He hinted indirectly to the mother that he hoped her illness would not be prolonged too long. She got the hint. He then began to pull away and become detached from her. She, in turn, tried to isolate herself by closing the doors, blocking herself off from her husband and family, till finally she lost the will to live. Alone she suffered, alone she waited for death, and she passed away like that. You see, friends, suffering produces guilt and shame and, most of all, isolation. The answer to isolation is not a speech on theology. The answer to isolation isn't why God does this or that or trying to figure it out. The answer is God's presence. At such a time as this, a friend needs to just be there. And often that's the only thing you have to say. You can speak by saying nothing. You can speak by simply being there. You can speak with your presence that God is near. Faith lesson number two, the issue of individual righteousness is not performance but relationship. How many times as Christians do we think that, you know, God is looking at me to see if I mess up. And if I mess up, then I've run my witness. That's not really what the Bible's focusing on because the issue of individual righteousness is not just performance as such, but it's relationship with God. Job 9.27, Job is speaking, If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my set countenance and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? In Job 1, verse 11, Satan argues that Job will curse God to his face. The Hebrew word translated curse here is a euphemism for the Hebrew word kalal, which means to curse, but that's not the word used here. The word used in Job 1.11 is the word barak, which means to bless. He says, he'll bless you, O God, to your face. That's what he'll do. In other words, Satan wants Job to ignore the injustice of his pain, forget about his problems, operate on a prosperity theology that says the right things to get the right outcomes. Pretend it doesn't exist. He'll bless you. He'll bless you, all right, because you have the stick in your hand. Come up and calm down and then bless God on high, Job, and all the answers come. Forget about being authentic with God when you're angry. Forget about praying about the feelings you really have. Just say the right things to get your camels back and more children in the future. Get practical about outcomes and call on God for the fruit of prosperity theology. Pray and pay, and then God will hear. That's what he's claiming here. If God did this to Job in the context, he would in effect be cursing God. And so Job catches that. He says, if I don't tell God where I'm coming from, I will become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I need to tell you where I'm at. It's not about performance. It's about relationship. If Job did this to God in the context, he would in effect be cursing God and denying his relationship with God by opting for a false 
relationship that's nothing but a fraud to manipulate God. From God's perspective, there is no emotion that you experience that you should keep away from God. Did you hear me? There's no failure that should get in the way of you coming to God. There's no sin that you struggle with that should prevent you from praying for deliverance and forgiveness because you need God more than you need some track record you can put on a performance card to impress God. You don't need that part. You need God. From God's perspective, there is no emotion that's unimportant to Him. Notice what Job says. He says, Why have you made me your target? He goes on to say, Hast thou eyes of flesh? Dost thou see as a man sees? Dost thou seek out my iniquity and search out for my sin, although thou knowest that I am not guilty? He says, I have sinned, but I've come to you. Therefore, I'm not guilty. What are you trying to do? You're trying to resurrect the stuff from the past that I have taken to you? This is what's in play in his mind. When a person suffers, they sometimes express emotions that seem wrong to religious people. And when that happens, the worst thing you can do is to tell them to straighten up and quit sinning. The Bible says in Proverbs 24, 16, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. The definition of righteousness is not the absence of failure. The definition of righteousness is the willingness and the faith to get up and walk and to not let sin stand in the way of a relationship with God, to move forward and give it to God. Well, we need to leave it there for the first portion of IMAX Man. We'll complete this the next time we're together. Are you fascinated by the prophecies of Revelation? Have you wished you could understand prophecy better? Do the symbols of the Bible's last book baffle you? God's Last Altar Call is just the book you need. Mark Finley clearly explains the events soon to unfold in this world. Be sure to call today for your copy. 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. The book is yours for a donation of any size. Thank you for your generosity. Your donations keep this ministry on the air. Again, thank you for your support. 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. If you would like to listen to this message again, it is available for you at reachingyourheart.com. Once again, reachingyourheart.com. There are many messages available along with this broadcast as well. Thanks for listening today. And as always, we want you to know that we do pray that God is reaching your heart.